All right, so today we are continuing in a series on James. We've been looking at James for a little while now, and we are continuing with that today. And this week we are answering a very profound question, what is the will of God? What is the will of God? We talk about the will of God a lot around here. We talk about how we should pray according to the will of God, that we should submit to God's will, that his will is ultimate. Everything happens according to his will. Now, that leaves us with some questions. People often ask me, as an expert, apparently, on God's will, as a pastor, what is God's will for me? What is God's will for my life? You ought to know. And maybe you have that question this morning. What is God's will for your life? Or maybe you have a harder question. Maybe you've lived with deep regrets. Maybe you've endured pain and suffering. And you want to know, did I somehow get off of the, God, the will of God? Did I thwart the will of God? Did I somehow stray from his plan for me? And if I didn't, then why did God in his will decide for this suffering and this misery for me? Or maybe you just want to know, what is God going to do? Maybe you look at Robbie and you think, what, what is God's will for his life? What is God going to do in the life of this child? What will the future hold? So we have this question, what is God's will? And that, that answer to that question is actually going to shape holistically how we interact with God on a number of levels. And today we answer that question. And James is going to answer that question by saying that there are actually two wills of God. And we live under both of them. We first of all live under the hidden will of God. The hidden will of God as humble, dependent creatures. And we also live under the revealed will of God as obedient children. There are two wills. And we have to recognize that there is a lot about the future, a lot about the plan of God that he does not tell us anything about, that we will actually never know. And yet there's much that he has revealed to us, much of his heart he has communicated to us in his word. And so we see this tension. We both know and we don't know. And we also see that things happen that God seems to hate. And there's also this deep love that God has for certain things. We see a tension between the hidden and revealed wills of God. Today we're going to look at both of those and we're going to see how those wills come together and are united in Jesus Christ in the cross. That Jesus is the ultimate revelation of the will of God for our salvation. So, turn with me to James 4, verse 13 through 17. James 4, 13 through 17. Please read with me. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do know, not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Pray with me. Father, as we look at your word, we ask that you might open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to receive your word. Fill us with the Spirit that we may understand what your will is, that we may please you, we may walk humbly with you as our God. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So, before we start, maybe we're a little bit ahead of ourselves. What is a will? And I'll give you the technical definition. A will is the faculty by which a person decides on and initiates action. Now, if that is as meaningless to you as it is to me, what it basically means is your will is that thing that makes you decide what to do. So let's say that you have a will to get pizza for dinner. You had a will to get pizza for dinner probably sometime in the recent history. Hopefully. Hopefully. And basically what you did is your, your will said that you wanted pizza and you exercised that will to get pizza for dinner. We exercise our wills all the time. But God has a will too. He has a lot more willpower as the sovereign Lord of the universe. But God has a kind of a complicated will. He has two wills. And the hard part is that Scripture doesn't distinguish the two. It uses will either way. And so it can be kind of confusing for us. If we're just going through the Bible, reading it, we can get confused and think that one will is the other. And we actually end up getting weird things out of the Bible. We are misunderstanding. So I want to make sure that we can distinguish between these two wills and properly apply them when they come up. All right, are we all ready for that? You guys look a little scared. All right. <laughs> all right, first of all, we're going to talk about the hidden will of God. The hidden will of God. The hidden will of God is what God decides will happen at every single moment. He decides. He sovereignly chooses what will happen. Every single thing. That is his hidden will. And we only come to see what his hidden will is as he executes it. So as we see history, we see, oh, that must have been God's hidden will. And the problem is that in the future, we have no idea what that will is. We know that he's in control, but it is, as its name alludes to, it is hidden from us. So we ask, how are we supposed to live under the hidden will of God? Well, James is going to start, kind of, he's kind of negative, so he'll start with the negative. How are we not supposed to live? Most of the time, he's going to say that we actually, God, Robbie, it's his baptism, and he has to fuss. Come on, all right. <laughs> he's dying for attention over here. All right. <laughs> all right, so most of the time, in our arrogance, we deny the hidden will of God. We deny the hidden will of God. Verse 13. Come now you who say, tomorrow, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. All right. So what is wrong with this statement? James doesn't like this. What is wrong with it? It seems innocent enough. We all talk like this. James is asking, what is the heart behind that kind of a comment? 
there's a certain there's a certainty to it, which is not necessarily bad. There's a confidence. But there's also a certain independence in this kind of statement, an arrogance in it. Most of the time, we can say these kind of things without a caveat. Because most of the time, our lives are fairly consistent. Our lives are, I don't know, fairly uh, ordinary. And we as privileged Americans, most of the time, what we want is what happens. And so we can kind of get overconfident in the way we speak and also in the way we act. We do this all the time. All right, so we can boast about our future success with such certainty, and then we lose our jobs, and we get injured on the job, can't do it anymore. The economy fails, and suddenly what was so certain is not certain anymore. Well, let's take a more everyday example. Let's say you, you just resolved we are going to get to church on time this week. You declared it. It's going to happen. Then the baby throws up on the way to the church, all over his car seat. Or you lose your keys. Maybe just as you're leaving the house, someone can't find their shoes. Hopefully it's not your husband. Hopefully it's your kids, right? They can't find their shoes. My favorite recently has been the people who like to predict whether the baby is going to be a boy or a girl. All right? Oh, oh, it's a girl. I'm never wrong. There's a prophetic lady in the grocery store. Who knew? But there's lots of them. We, we hate to break it to them that they're wrong, but they, they, we don't want to leave them too humbled, so we, we let them go up. But we can get really arrogant and overconfident in the way that we talk. All right, but we can also express this same heart when we are anxious or when we are worried. We act like we can foresee the future and that this doom in our hearts is certain to happen. We say things like, this is going to be a disaster. Or we say something like, you know, I just can't handle this. It is too much. I will not be able to do this. Or we just say, no, I, I'm going to fail. There's this odd truth that in our worry and in our fear, there's also an arrogance. There's a certainty, even in the midst of weakness, oddly enough. In both ways, we are declaring that we know the future. And what's wrong with that is that it shapes our hearts. It creates a certain understanding about ourselves. It's telling ourselves that we are in control, that what we want is what should happen, and is what is going to happen. But the problem is that the only person who can say that is someone who knows all things and has control over all things. This is, these are God statements. This is just one more way of the hundreds of ways that we as humans act like we are gods. So James has to remind us, always humbling us, just how weak and dependent we really are. Verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know if you will survive the drive home from church this morning. You don't know if five seconds from now, God is going to give you another breath. 
That is the real state that we are in before God. That we can get into this trap of thinking that we are so strong or that we are in control. That what we want goes. That this is our universe to control. But instead, verse 15, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Our speech ought to reflect our theology. Not to reflect the fact that there is a sovereign God with a hidden will that is not our own. Now, is this just semantics? Are these just word games that we play? One more thing for Christians to, to point out in each other. Oh, you forgot to say if the Lord wills. We can all play that game. We all forget all the time. But these are words that reflect a heart, reflect an attitude, and reflect an understanding. Do we actually think that we are in control or that God is in control? And when push comes to shove, do we act and think and feel as if we are in control or that God is? And that's where, if we're going to do this well, we need to leave room. Leave room to be disappointed and actually leave room to be pleasantly surprised. Because both are the case. Maybe you have all of these dreams and expectations, all of these hopes and wishes, and we need to recognize that God, in his hidden will, might not give us those things. And in the same way, we might have all of these fears and dreads, and we have to recognize that maybe God won't make those come upon us. Maybe things will be better than we ever expected. So I would call us not to cling to anything with this death grip. That God takes and he gives, he gives and he takes away. He gives and he takes away. And we cannot thwart that will. We cannot resist it. So we can either cling and become bitter and angry, resentful towards God, or we can with open hands receive things and let things go. Be the creatures that we already are. Because this is the reality of being a creature in God's world. And I don't use that pejoratively that we are creatures. is that we are created. That he is the creator and he decides what happens. Now what is that going to look like in a day-to-day -day basis? Verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Holistically, what this is going to look like is humility. Humility. You're going to be humble enough to say that, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Humble enough to say, my plan for my life isn't set. I don't know what's best for me, even. You don't know what's best for you. And God does. It's going to be humility enough to say that there is nothing that I need to cling to that is life itself. That God can take away anything and I will survive. We often don't believe that is true, but we have the humility to believe God at his word. Which means that we're going to let the hidden will of God stay hidden. It is hidden for a reason. We as creatures kind of shouldn't know some of these things and have no right to know them. And so we need to stop gazing into the future, hoping that he might reveal it to us. Now, most of the time, we are called to live in the present, 
the right here, right now, faced with what God has called us to right now. With the humility of recognizing that that is, in our purview, that is what we're responsible for. Not micromanaging the future, not casting our fears into the future, just dealing with the present. All right, how might that reach your wives in different ways? All right, this is a tough one. You guys need to stop being guilty about things that happened in the past. Oftentimes in counseling, people come to me with guilt. And it's guilt about things that they could never have anticipated. They're actually guilty, not because of sin. They didn't do anything wrong, but they're guilty because things happened that went wrong. That they, had no, they made a decision thinking it was a good one and it turned out worse than they expected. And they feel guilty thinking, well, I must have thwarted God's will. Maybe I jumped off the path that he had for me. Maybe I need to repent over those decisions. That's guilt just that you're human. There's no guilt there. You will make bad decisions. You'll make mistakes. Not because you're sinful, but just because you don't know the future. And the trouble is that we can try to throw that guilt at the cross and it doesn't stick. Because it's not sin in any way. The cross doesn't pay for it. We're just kind of beating ourselves down because we are human. You're human. You do not know everything that's going to happen. And you're going to make mistakes and you're going to look back and be, oh, I wish I had known more. But you will not. Now, as a corollary to that, just because a decision results in suffering, results in things that are hard, doesn't mean that you did something wrong. And it doesn't mean that you were outside of God's will. All right, let's take, let's take a very simple example. Let's say you have a decision. You can work at McDonald's or you can work at Burger King. Which one are you going to pick? Let's say you pick Burger King. You pick Burger King, and it's a terrible, miserable experience. That your boss is terrible. That your work hours are terrible. That your coworkers are terrible. You don't then go back and say, oh man, I should have picked McDonald's. Clearly that was God's will for me. Clearly he wanted me to pick McDonald's, and I, I just made the wrong decision. No, it was his decision according to his hidden will, that you would work at Burger King and that it would be miserable. <laughs> Unfortunately, God does will that we suffer. He does will that there are hard times. That doesn't mean we made a mistake. That means that that is what his plan entailed. Don't go back and feel guilty. Don't go back and say, oh man, I must have screwed up. No, you didn't. He just willed for that to happen. Now, that can be hard, though, because that leaves us kind of angry. Why would God will for us to have suffering, for bad things to happen? We actually oftentimes like the one where it's like, oh, no, I must have gone off of God's will because how could God will this to be my life? And that's where we get to our second point. There's a second will of God. And that is the revealed will of God. 
the revealed will of God. The revealed will of God asks, answers the question, what does God love? What does he like? What pleases him? That is the revealed will of God. And he has revealed that to us. We don't pretend that we don't know. It's not a mystery. No, he tells us very clearly what he loves and what he hates. We mostly see this in his commandments, in his law. He tells us exactly what he loves. And he tells us what he hates, what is sin. The revealed will is God's desires, what he loves and what he wants. And if those are his desires, then, and they are very clear, our relationship to the revealed will is very simple. When we encounter the re revealed will of God, we do it. You obey the revealed will. Verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We are called simply to obey the revealed will of God. As simple as that. Now, let's take an example of that. Let's take prayer. You are supposed to pray according to the will of God. What does that mean? Does that mean you are supposed to be prophetic in your prayers and try to make sure that your prayers match up with what God is going to do in the future? That would be praying according to the hidden will of God. You are not supposed to do that. Don't do that. Prayer is not just guessing at what God is going to do in the future. No, you are supposed to pray according to the revealed will of God. When you pray, you pray the desires of God. You're taking your heart and lining it up with God's heart. Praying for things that you know he loves. Things that he has revealed to you. And so when you pray for things like healing for a job for someone, for blessings upon people, you don't have to say, if the Lord wills. He has willed that. Oftentimes, we put that, if the Lord wills, on there, not because we're being faithful to this. It's because we're not confident in our prayers. We're not sure if God really wants to do this. Ultimately, we are supposed to pray according to his revealed will, lining our hearts up with his, and we trust him to answer it according to his hidden will. We're not guessing. We're just lining our hearts up with God. And that's supposed to happen in prayer, and that's supposed to happen in all of our lives. In everything that we do, we seek out the revealed will of God, and we match our heart with God's heart. But the problem is that... No, no, not the problems yet. I'm positive first. All right. What is, what is God's desire for this world? If we're supposed to line up our desires with God's desires, what is his desire? I would say his desire is ultimately to be glorified, to be worshipped, to be enjoyed, to be praised. That is God's desire. Now, oddly enough, that can seem like a very selfish and arrogant desire, kind of egotistical. Now, it would be if we had that. If God were not God and he said, oh, glorify me, it would be selfish and it would be arrogant. But when it's God, when it's God who says, glorify me, and humans do it, actually, humans find that we are the most pleased 
and most joyful and most elated, most fulfilled when we're glorifying him. That's where you can see where the world is actually created. You can see what God is doing. When we obey the revealed will of God, kind of the puzzle pieces come together. And actually, everything works for good. When we put his will first, we see that things like peace and grace and mercy and equality and acceptance, those things become kind of the fabric of the world because God desires those things far more than we do. If we make God's will ultimate, then actually we will get our wills fulfilled as well. Not our sinful wills, but our ultimate wills, the wills for the things that are actually good. So as we line up our hearts with him, we will actually benefit. But the problem is, the problem is we love the hidden will more than the revealed will. When we ask God to reveal his will to us, we do not mean, Lord, tell us what you want. We say, Lord, tell us the future. Tell me what the future will hold for me. And we are often disappointed because he doesn't tell us. Some examples, we might say, God, what, what is the job that you have for me? Reveal that to me. Not, Lord, how can I please you here and now? How can I just do your work of pleasing you right at this moment? Or we say, Lord, who, who should I marry? Reveal to me who my spouse should be. When instead, he reveals to you how you can be a godly spouse, fostering those characteristics, even before getting married. He's telling you what to do in the present according to his revealed will. It's more important to him that you would know what he loves and that you would do it. But we love the future more. And what does that tell, tell us about ourselves? We love the future more because the future is about us. We want to make sure that our will our desires, our wants are fulfilled in the future. And so we're desperate to know the future because we're desperate to get what we want. We want to check with God. All right, do you, yeah, you got this going? Do I need to come in and, and help you out a bit? And so we, we love the future, but we don't love when God just tells us what his revealed will is, how we can please him, the things we're actually responsible for. That's where, that's where all this, everything starts to fall apart when we put our will above God's. Now, maybe you see a kind of problem here. Everyone has seen a problem here. There's the revealed will, which seems to be so good. has all this good stuff about it. Peace and grace and mercy and love. And then we see his hidden will, and we get kind of disappointed. Right? Why don't they match? God, why do you... Say you love all this stuff, but then you give me all this stuff. Why is there a disparity? And we get mad at God. And we shake our fist at God and say, why, why did you will this to happen? Forgetting that it was because of humanity's rejection of his revealed will that screwed everything up in the first place. We messed it up. That Adam, way back when, 
he decided to put his will above God's will. That was what messed up the whole world. That is why we are under the curse. That is why there is suffering and misery in this world. It's because we rejected the revealed will of God. And now the, the hidden will of God has to take into account the fact that there are billions of sinners with hearts that desire destruction and suffering and misery. We actually do that to each other. We have put ourselves under the wrath of God. And so as much as we can say, Lord, why did you do this to me? He can look us back and say, well, this is the decision that you made. These are the consequences of your actions. You messed this up. All right. So there is a conflict between the hidden and revealed will of God. So that God, as a God of judgment, cannot just make his revealed will exactly as it would be. We actually stand under judgment because we have pleased ourselves, put our will above God's will. Now that is a bleak picture. It's a very bleak picture. But thankfully, there is more to the story. We have Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ brings together the hidden will and the revealed will of God. Now Jesus had a will. Jesus is, Jesus is God. He's the one who created the hidden will of God. And yet this God, the Son of God, came to be a human. He came onto this earth with all of its desires and its temptations. All of the temptations to be selfish. And every single time, Jesus Christ put the revealed will of God first. He submitted his will to the Father. Every single time. We, what we try to be good people. That's what it means to be good. To submit every single time to the revealed will of God. And as the final test in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus stood there pleading that God the Father would not will him to die on the cross. Jesus' will was not to die. The Father's will was for Jesus to die on the cross. And what did Jesus say at that moment? Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus Christ submitted to the Father, and he was crucified. Jesus Christ, he entered into the vapor of this world. He became a mist, and he vanished. He was killed. But thankfully, he rose from the dead. And what was the result of him raising from the dead? Twofold. Impacts both the hidden will and the revealed will. All right, let's talk about hidden will first. The hidden will has been revealed in Jesus Christ. There was always a trajectory. The trajectory was that God would create a perfect world. That he would choose his people. That he would end the misery and the suffering and create a glorious and perfect new kingdom for us to dwell in. We are guaranteed that that is the, the ultimate trajectory of history. 
He made that the case. And God is bringing us along that path. You are not a meaningless vapor to God. You are not a meaningless mist to disappear one day and be gone for all eternity. No. In Christ, you are the beloved of God. You are the bride of Christ. And he's guaranteed that he will bring you to that perfect place of blessing and joy in God. That is what the hidden will has for you. The guarantee of the new heavens and new earth. You cannot thwart that. No one is going to thwart that. That was God's plan and that is God's plan until the end. And Jesus enabled that to happen. Jesus brought in a new kingdom. Jesus killed the curse. He brought an end to death. He brought about a glorious new kingdom. Now Jesus also changed the revealed will of God. Not necessarily changed, he, he shifted it. First of all, he paid for all of the penalty of our selfishness, of our rejection of the revealed, God, revealed will. He paid for all that stuff. We were condemned, but he paid for it. And then, in his resurrection, he gave us new wills. A will to receive the Father. To accept the cross. He gave us new wills so that we can be obedient in a way that we were never able to before. That is what he did on the cross. That is what he did on the resurrection. So this morning, what would I call you to? I would call you to submit to the will of God. First of all, submit to the will of God that he wishes to save you. He wishes to die for your sins. He wishes to restore you so that you might be destined to go to that perfect place. That your history might be guaranteed to end with the new heavens and new earth and paradise. And then, I would call you to submit to the revealed will of God. To obey Him for your own good. Obey Him in the present. Obey Him passionately, knowing that it is for your good. Obey Him knowing that you have greater pleasure in glorifying Jesus Christ than in yourself. In Jesus Christ, in nothing but Jesus, God has revealed His will for us. A will for salvation. A will for our good. A will to love us even as we are.